unexpectedly sometimes. It works like a charm. I just, I just used it a few minutes ago, and it worked like a charm for somewhere else, and then come down here, and it goes crazy. But anyway, we're good. Hope you've had a great day. It's starting to feel good to come into air conditioning, isn't it? So uh, that time of year for sure. Well, glad you're here, and hope you've had a great day. We certainly had a great service here this morning. And I uh, just want to remind you a couple things coming up this week. Our midweek Wednesday service where we're doing questions and answers will continue this week. And then Thursday, if you're part of the Day 5 Fellowship, we have an outing plan and our summer schedule's out in the lobby. So make sure you pick up one of those. All the details about Thursday are there. And then um, next Saturday is the His Ministry Golf Tournament. So um, if you're interested or know somebody that might be, there's some information sheets out in the lobby about that. And um, so we're moving right along here through the month of April, heading toward the second half of uh, the month already. So it's uh, moving by quick as it always does. Well, we're continuing our study of the Baptist history. We're going to finish this next two Sundays as we finish the month of April. And we've got some good things to talk about tonight that I trust will be encouraging and help us understand the history of the Baptist, particularly a little bit in our state. We're starting to narrow down, right, and, um, from all this. So let's pray, and then we'll take a look at our, at our uh, lesson here. Father, thank you for our time to come together and just spend a few moments to learn a little bit of the generations before us who helped to lay a path and prepare a, a way that um, the ministry and the gospel uh, could be impacted in uh, the lives of of so many, and including us, as we stand generations after these. We are thankful for them, for their convictions, and for their commitment. And may it be a reminder to us to prepare the way for future generations that will follow us. I pray that you will uh, bless our time this evening. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. I pray that you bless each of the Bible study groups tonight as they gather to uh, learn and to grow and to uh, continue the work of uh, uh, understanding and proclaiming the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so we've, the path of the Baptist has come a long way. We started this way back in the fall, and there's another piece of technology not working. And uh, we, want to, uh, we want to go down the road of, of um, that path very quickly. I'm trying to get this chart kind of in our mind. This will be on the test, by the way, right? So make sure you got this note. Uh, we start with, way back in England in the English separatist movement. Those were the Christians who said, we cannot follow the Church of England. Their doctrine is too corrupt. It's too Catholic in one way. Uh, we don't see it being biblical. And so they were unable to change it as the Puritans tried to do. And so they separated from the Church of England. But being separated from the Church of England meant that you were breaking the law. Because the law of the land was if you're a citizen of England, you attend the Church of England. Otherwise, you're a traitor. So these separatists had to leave England for their own life. They went to Holland primarily. Amsterdam is where one group wound up. Another group wound up in Leland, Holland. The group that went to Leland, Holland will wind up being the pilgrims that we know about who came to America. The group that was in Amsterdam stayed there for a few years. And they would eventually come back to England. And under the leadership of Thomas Helwes... Um, they came back and organized the first Baptist church congregation. Now, we use the term Baptist in quotes because they didn't even call themselves Baptists. They didn't know what to call themselves. They just weren't Anglicans, or they weren't Church of England. They were separatists at best. 
And so this congregation assembled in 1612 in London. Shortly after, that same leader, Thomas Hellwes, was arrested uh, by the government and imprisoned. Uh, he went to uh, Newgate Prison, and uh, within four years, he would die in Newgate Prison for his faith, for his convictions as a, as a separatist. And uh, he would write some while he was there, very, some very influential writings, um, not terribly lengthy, but uh, at the time had a great uh, impact on the movement of those who were looking to have a more biblically-based faith of Christianity. Some of those Baptists in England found that in years later, as you sort of turn the clock ahead quickly through the pilgrims and those who settled in the New England colonies, that they would be a place for the Baptist there. Uh, Roger Williams is a name most associated, we talked about him earlier, the most associated with that Baptist group in Rhode Island in a city that he named Providence, filling the Lord's leadership to put him there. And they established the first Baptist church there in the colony of Rhode Island, uh, established later under a, uh, um, under a charter from England. And so the New England Baptists begin to grow. The problem is they, they find their conflicts with the Congregationalists. Those pilgrims who came to America weren't especially uh, favorable to the Baptists who would come to America. So um, the Baptists who came sort of had to find themselves outside the realm of the Congregationalists, primarily in Massachusetts and Connecticut and Maine. So they found other places to go. Rhode Island was a good place. Pennsylvania was also a good place. Uh, there was no persecution there for religious uh, uh, convictions. So the New England Baptist movement starts to gain some momentum through the mid-1600s. We finish out the 1600s, and Baptists are starting to be more noticeable. Um, and by the time you get to uh, the early 1700s, 1707, you now have five Baptist churches in uh, Philadelphia. And those five Baptist churches create the first association of Baptists here in, the, in America. Um, and they establish what would be a trend of moving forward, establishing uh, a, an association or a fellowship of Baptist churches. Congregations, of course, being small at the time and, and somewhat scattered, it gave them a way to uh, support one another. The Philadelphia Baptist Association set a pattern that would be shown in other separatist churches that started to crop up, even from other denominations. And in the early 1700s, you had this movement of more and more churches of typically Baptist, Methodist, or Presbyterian denominations that were being scattered throughout the uh, colonies. Of course, it's the early 1700s. You know, we're still a long way away from independence here in America at that time. By the time you get to the uh, period of late, early 17, late 16, early 1700s, you start to have what are called separate Baptists. The separate Baptists simply separated from those separatist churches. The separatist churches didn't have much identity. They just weren't going to be part of the mainstream or established churches. The established churches were primarily the Congregationalist, which were the pilgrim churches, or they were Church of England. Those were the established churches. A lot of congregations pulled away from those, but they didn't know what to call themselves. Some of the ones who began to identify with the term Baptist, which by now, 100 years, nearly 100 years later, was in use and was well accepted as a, as a distinction of a, of a Christian congregation. 
And so they became known as separate Baptists. That's a term we don't see much here in the South. Uh, you, have to, you have to sort of trace its history more through the Northern, our Northern Baptist brethren. Um, by the time you get to that same period, you've also got Baptists beginning to move. And we're going to mention a little bit of this to North Carolina. Um, in 1696, William uh, Scriven was run out by the Congregationalist of Maine, and so he comes to Charleston, South Carolina, and establishes the First Baptist Church there, and what would be, eventually become the Association of Baptist Church net, uh, there that is still named for him. The association around Charleston of Baptist Churches is still called the Scriven Baptist Association for that history. We mentioned Shubal Stearns comes also from Connecticut, being felt that like he's called by the Lord under the preaching of, of George Whitfield uh, in, this, in America's First Great Awakening, he feels a call to missions, if you will, a heart to, to take the gospel. And so he and his family begin to move south. And they work their way into the uh, Norfolk area of Virginia, uh, but don't feel settled there, even though they, he had a sister and a brother-in-law that, that were in ministry and had worked with American, uh, Native Americans uh, Indians and trying to take uh, the our Native Americans to try to take the gospel to them. They didn't feel like that was the place to settle, so they came to what was then Guilford County and to the area of Sandy Creek and began the first Baptist association here in uh, central North Carolina, the central Carolinas uh, for that area. So you had two, you had sort of two spots where Baptists were starting to gain momentum. I'll mention another one here in just a moment. So that's the late 1600s into the middle 1700s, pretty much takes us. What I want to do tonight is try to take us from that, so about that same time period, the late 1600s, and quickly review a few things and get us into the 1800s, which I think we can do all that in a, a quick amount of time, we trust. Before Shubal Stearns came, and Shubal Stearns is a name people, I think, Baptists should know, but before Shubal Stearns came, there were always already some Baptist influences starting to happen in North Carolina, particularly the eastern part of North Carolina. Uh, Baptist preachers, records tell us, were beginning to come into North Carolina from Virginia and start to do kind of some circuit preaching. You know, sort of go to this community and preach here for a week or two, and this community and preach here for a week or two, and so on. And so there's records as early as 1698 of, of that happening, and that would happen in, obviously in the decades ahead. One of the men in eastern North Carolina recognized for his uh, frontier work with the Baptist is Paul Palmer. And again, you have to go to eastern North Carolina to find much reference to him. He organizes Baptist churches in, into the 1700s, beginning in the 1720s. And again, there's, there's a record of his work and his labors there in helping to not only church plant, as we would say today, or start churches with Baptist doctrine, but also to combine them into an association. And then you, can, then you begin to trace the counties, as we know them today particularly, uh, Pasquotank County, Hertford County, Halifax, and Bertie County. And you can see the dates there when Baptist churches were first started. So, you know, again, you know, we... we uh, we can find some Baptist churches down there with quite a history. I mean, 300 plus years of history in the area down there if you go to the eastern part of North Carolina and, and uh, find. So again, Baptist North Carolina is starting to be more of an influence as you work your way into the 1700s. And of course, within a couple of decades, now the War of Independence is the driving force of everything happening in the colonies. And uh, the, the movement of missions, you know, obviously slows. And uh, there's, again, I'm going to take the time to go through it here, didn't intend to, but it's worth mentioning 
that when you go back and read what were the Baptist perspectives on the War of Independence, you'll find three groups. It may not surprise you. You'll find three groups in their opinions, from their written opinions, of the War of Independence. Some people were for it, some people were against it, and some people didn't care one way or the other. So it's interesting to sort of hear the, 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 the words that pastors were preaching to the congregation to say, no, we should stay under the king of England, and others who would say, no, it's time for independence, and others who say, whatever happens, we're going to remain faithful to the gospel. I mean, you know, those, those, those minds are all uh, working during that time period too. But North Carolina begins to have its influence, certainly, in the 1700s of Baptists. We'll come back to our state here in just a moment. There are some names during this time period worth knowing, too. And these are, these are men who's, who they and their families are worth reading. You want to read a good biography and hear someone who's committed their life to the service of the Lord in their generation? Uh, then these are some men to know. I'll mention a few here. Let's start with this one, William Carey. I keep pushing this thing. It's going to work. It's not working. Uh, William Carey is a name to know, uh, was a missionary to India, called the father of modern missions because he left England. He is one of those English Baptists who, in the, who nearly 100 years after the Baptists sort of get their foothold in um, or nearly 150 years, really, the Baptists begin to get their foothold in England. Now the first missionary goes. William Carey is, is quite a story for sure. He went to India what was then India, a bigger country than it is today, and, and uh, made quite an impact uh, on that part of the world for the gospel. Along with making an impact on that part of the world, he began really what was the movement of the missions that would last until today, the outreach of, of uh, missionaries into different parts of the world. Um, William Carey committed his life to service there to the people of India, he brought the gospel to them that they had not heard. He brought to them um, ethics and morals that they had not heard. They were all Hindu, and that was a different ethic system entirely. One of the things interesting that William Carey fought most against was a tradition that had developed in the Hindu religion where when a husband died, his wife was cremated with him. So they would build a funeral pyre to burn the body and lay the dead husband on the funeral pyre. But then they would take the wife and bind her and lay her alive on top of him, and they would both burn up. William Carey fought this tradition all the way through the legal systems, especially as, as India became more under English control. The English kind of said, we don't want to create, we don't want to create a problem. You know, if that's, a, that's their tradition, let them do it. And William Carey fought dramatically for that. That, no, this is immoral. How can we as a Christian nation allow this to be happening, right? And so it's, it's really the biggest social battle he, he has uh, while he's there. William Carey will translate the Bible into the native language uh, 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 that is shared by many of the different people groups of that world, that part of the world. And uh, still a very influential name. Uh, I've taught over in Bangladesh at seminary, which at the time was part of India, and had the privilege of visiting the William Carey Academy, um, very much engaged in, in teaching uh, children and young people from a Christian perspective. When I taught students there, um, uh, they would always bring two Bibles to class every day. One Bible would be the William Carey edition, 
translation. Another one would be an, an English translation because we would work from both. So a man who's, whose life and influence is, is still being felt today, um, uh, you know, 250 years or more after his, uh, after his passing. And so uh, William Carey is one of those names to know. There is a movie that was put out in the late 1980s, I think it was, called A Candle in the Dark. And uh, uh, it's a good little overview movie of his life and uh, the challenges and struggles. He had two wives die there in India uh, while he was ministering and serving. And uh, so an interesting, interesting man for sure. And one of his great quotes I've always been inspired by, he goes to India, think about this, in 1793. Um, think about traveling in 1793, the long voyage it took by ship to get to a place where there was no air conditioning, right? No electricity. Uh, there was a lot, to, a lot of struggles and battles he had to go through to maintain his ministry and the things he kept going. But uh, one of his great statements uh, preserved uh, in many places in Baptist history is his statement, uh, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And uh, it's, a, it's a great story of a pioneer missionary for sure. But he, again, he comes from England. He comes out of the Baptist groups there in London. Another individual worth knowing during this time period that uh, Pastor Nick introduced us to a couple, of, let's see, a week before Easter maybe, if you remember, is Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was an American Baptist, originally ordained as a Congregationalist, but, but during his travels as he was working his way from America to Burma, today called Myanmar, um, uh, he became a convinced, a convinced Baptist. And so he leaves America as a Congregationalist, but arrives in, arrives in Burma as a Baptist. And there becomes under the uh, teaching more of the Baptist resources he'd brought with him to, uh, to understand better. He is remembered as an American Baptist missionary uh, to Burma. He too would be, be very similar. Uh, he would, uh, and I'll introduce a third man to you. Uh, he and, and the next man I'll introduce to you both stopped to see William Carey. They are all the same generation. He stopped in India to visit with William Carey, uh, they did, uh, in order to get some encouragement about strategies he was using because they're going to an equally unreached people group, and they want that experience of Carey to give them some places to start in their ministry. Judson, too, would translate the Bible, and his, his work would be, um, uh, would be remembered for generations. Pastor Nick and I had an interesting conversation just a week or so after he preached that. We were talking about William, about uh, Adoniram Judson, and how we, in our generation and in our place, have seen the full circle now. Because our church has two ministries that particularly are geared toward families who are refugees from Burma for being Christians. You may not know, but in Greensboro and in Winston-Salem, there are, uh, there are Burmese uh, immigrant families here who escaped Burma, Myanmar, due to the persecution they were receiving from the government. And the story sounds very similar to those early Baptists. And I've had the opportunity in both locations to meet some of those families. Uh, one, of the, one of the Burmese pastors and I uh, did something a couple years ago together over in Winston-Salem. And they have tremendous stories, and, and I can't help but admire them. Because they left their home. They, they wound up in a, in a refugee camp in Thailand where they stayed unsure of what their future was going to be. 
And for those families who were able to find themselves here, in, in not only in America, but in our community, uh, feel very blessed because they, they're now in a place where they have religious freedoms. And they're supported by, by fellow Baptists in the congregations here. You may not know the church across the street from us that still bears the name on the sign, Gethsemane Baptist Church. That congregation no longer meets in that building. They have pretty much dissolved. And uh, the Piedmont Baptist Association assigned that building to a Burmese congregation. So while we were here this morning worshiping the Lord, right across the street from us, within stone's throw of our parking lot, is a Burmese assembly of Baptist believers. And you know where they trace their, their history to? Adoniram Judson. And uh, it's quite a, a, a story of, of seeing the full completion of now Burmese Christians who love the Lord dearly and have had a great testimony and a great influence, and they all trace their heritage back to Adoniram Judson. And so he, too, is a man whose biography and life is worth knowing. He, too, would, would see two wives die on the mission field. And both these men saw their children die on the mission field because they did not have the capacity there to, to meet the medical needs of them at the time, even as healthy newborns. So uh, there are quite stories to, to, to inspire you. The third man in the mix is Luther Rice. This may or may not, we don't have a picture of him. The best thing come up with is a silhouette uh, or a drawing. Luther Rice, in this, same, in this same story, traveled with Adoniram Judson going to Burma. And he was the, um, the one who stopped to meet with William Carey as they were doing that. Luther Rice himself would stay in India for a short while, uh, but would come back to, to the colonies, to here in America, and uh, in, the, in, uh, in the States, that is, at the time, he would come back and he would be a, a mighty voice for raising mission support to those great works that were starting to show up in other places in the world. I'll mention a few others before we finish. Uh, Luther Rice today, all three of these men are names that are well revered in the history of American and missions Baptist. Again, Carey from England, uh, Judson and Rice from America. They are all revered. Uh, many of them have buildings named after them, colleges. There's a Luther Rice Seminary down in DeKalb County, Georgia, college and seminary. There's, uh, 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 there's a William Carey College. I think it's in Mississippi. Uh, so these are names that are well revered among the Baptist circles for sure and, again, worth knowing about. What Luther Rice did was he began to organize mission support, and he was one of the founding voices of, uh, of this group, called the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States of America for Foreign Missions. Boy, that's a tough name to put on a t-shirt, isn't it? Um, that was the organization that he started, was one of the, the founding voices of. This was an association too. And rather than use that long name, they became known as the Triennial Convention, started in 1814. Their purpose, their sole purpose, was to raise awareness and to raise funding for missionaries to go and do what had already been proven could be done by uh, Kerry and Judson and others. And so the Triennial Convention was the first national association of Baptists. Uh, the Philadelphia Convention in 1707 was the first association in America, but the Triennial Convention became the first national uh, group. This group organized Baptists from across the states, the, mostly the eastern states, obviously east of the Mississippi, organized Baptists uh, from, that part of the, from that part of the country uh, primarily for that purpose. 
Uh, of course, it's 1814, so we all know enough history to know this is a challenging time as we develop the next couple of, of decades as America is wrestling with the issue of slavery. And uh, that issue among Baptists, like it was in the rest of the country, was an issue of contention. Uh, the Baptists who came from the northern states, of course, uh, were proclaiming uh, abolition as a, um, a, a, as a necessary movement in our society. Those in the South had a little bit different perspective. Uh, the Baptists, there are certainly plenty of records of Baptists who did own slaves. Some of the more interesting things you'll find in the history of this, I think anyway, is notes from Baptist congregation business meetings where in the meetings they were bringing up the issues of slavery. And you could, in those Baptist churches, be brought before the church and disciplined before the church if you did not treat your slaves with proper you know, proper care. It's, it's so odd to us, isn't it? It's so foreign to our thinking. But imagine a business meeting where those issues are brought before the congregation to be decided on or before the church leadership. Um, the Northern and Southern Baptist kind of had a gentleman's agreement about slavery. I call it the first don't ask, don't tell agreement. Uh, the Northern Baptists uh, were told, don't ask us about our slaves. And the Southern Baptists said, and we won't tell you about our slaves because it was such a contentious issue. That issue, of course, would eventually come to a head in 1845 when the Southern Baptist churches pulled out to start their association or their convention. We still know it today. It's the Southern Baptist Convention, begun in 1845, where they separated from the Northern Baptists who still maintained their triennial convention. So, again, you can imagine a lot of emotion, an overshadowing certainly of politics and social issues with that, and uh, it's a deeper issue than we've got time to get into for sure. It is one thing to say that there are, there are many examples, many examples of Southern uh, Baptist congregations who did provide gospel uh, teaching and preaching uh, to the uh, African-American communities as they were both going through slavery and even after the Civil War. And so there are some bright spots in there, but you have to look for them and sort of know a little bit of the setting that they were operating in, but there was certainly a compassion to take the gospel to those. In some of the early, uh, even before the Civil War, there were Baptist preachers who were African Americans. And uh, so it's an interesting history part of that for sure that time just doesn't allow us to go much detail with. Of course, after the Civil War, following the period of Reconstruction in America, uh, and distinctions between groups as they're starting to develop their own doctrines and issues come to the table. There's lots of theological issues that come to America in the 1800s from Europe. And uh, as those issues become more discussed and more refined and more um, um, debated, uh, different conventions begin to uh, associate themselves with different ideas of theology, even from a Baptist perspective. The Triennial Convention of 1814 will be renamed the Northern Baptist Convention in 1907, you see there. It would later be re-identified as the American Baptist Convention, and then uh, uh, not outdone yet, they renamed themselves the American Baptist Churches USA. They simply go by the name ABC USA. I mean, that's a pretty easy acronym to remember. Uh, a label given to them in 1972. We'll come back to the American Baptist churches in a minute. Another name to know during this time period is this one, Richard Furman, who was the first president of that triennial convention that started in 1814, a very influential Baptist uh, leader himself. 
And uh, you can, certainly may know that name because it is of him that Furman University in South Carolina is named for a Baptist uh, university. Um, so um, again, one of those names that's kind of lost to us in history, but certainly influential during its time. During the time of the early 1800s, the, um, uh, the American frontier particularly was moved by one of the greatest events, one of the greatest religious events in American history called the Cane Ridge Revival. This was held the second week of August in 1801. Now think about this. This was held in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, um, uh, a little ways from Louisville, uh, and out in the wilderness and the frontier of the time. Uh, Vanderbilt historian, I found this quote from Vanderbilt historian, one of their professors there, said the Cane Ridge Revival was arguably the most important religious gathering in all of American history. Quite a statement. It ignited the explosion of evangelical religion, which soon reached, oops, I got ahead of myself, which soon reached um, into, the, into nearly every corner of American life. For decades, he says, the prayer of camp meetings across America and revivals was this, Lord, make it like Cane Ridge, because there was such a movement there. Estimates are, are around 20,000 people came to this movement. It went on literally daylight till midnight. There were varieties of preachers. You see the intent of the, the, the painting here to show they would set up these little temporary platforms. And men would come to preach, not to all 20,000, but to the group that's gathered on this side of the camp. And over across the camp, they built another little temporary place, and there'd be a preacher there. And across the camp from him, there'd be another preacher. And they would go on day and night. And so you had an opportunity to hear many preachers. Many denominations um, of conservative, particularly in Bible-based denominations, Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians, uh, joined into this. It really was a multi-denominational uh, multi event, for sure. Um, but that seemed to be the spark of what, what would certainly lead to America's second great awakening in the 1800s, uh, as it's called. And so the Cane Ridge Revival, again, is one of those things that's worth reading about. Even if you just go to the Internet and find a short article on it, uh, it's amazing to hear all the things that were happening and uh, what, what the, the influence of the gospel was having. Uh, of some other lessons, there are some things to be drawn out from that, but we'll save that for another time. So the Cane Ridge Revival is a big influence on the Baptist movement as it is also the Methodist and the, and the, and the Presbyterian frontier part of America still in the, in the uh, early part of the 1800s. One of the more interesting stories along this time, just a few years later, was a story of a, of a Congregationalist pastor named Daniel Merrill. This is a painting of Daniel Merrill there in the water, uh, intended to depict, depict his baptism in 1805. Daniel Merrill was an ordained Congregationalist pastor, and there behind him is the church building and his congregation standing at the, the lake's edge. The story is that he, was con, uh, he was, became convinced that infant baptism was unscriptural. And of course, the Congregationalist practiced infant baptism. I'm sure he had probably performed many as a, as a pastor. Uh, but through the, the thought of studying he became convinced that believer's baptism was the biblical way and that the Baptist doctrine was for him. So he continued to wrestle with this issue even to his congregation. And he said that he was, 
he had announced to them that he was going to preach a series on baptism in his church that would once and for all settle the issue, not only for him, but also for his congregation. Not committed to say where, where he stood yet, he still wrestled with the issue. So he continued to read and pray and fast and meditate, read the Bible, but he still could not embrace the Baptist position. He finally became convinced. Finally, he is, his research, his conscience, yield to a biblical conviction, conviction that believer's baptism was the biblical truth and the way it should, it should be exercised by a local congregation. Merrill then began a seven-week series of sermons on the subject of baptism as a, as a Baptist would preach it. In the conclusion of the series, the church voted almost unanimously, there's always a few, aren't there? Almost unanimously to become a Baptist church congregation. Dr. Thomas Baldwin, the pastor of Second Baptist Church in Boston, is portrayed here with Daniel Merrill, who came from uh, Sedwick. And on May 13, 1805, he baptized the pastor, Merrill, there in the lake. And on that same day, he also baptized 64 of the church members. And on the next day, another 19. A council was called, and the former congregational church uh, would, would formally announce its change to be a Baptist congregation. And this plaque still today is on that white church building there, Congregational Meeting House from 1794 to 1805, but then a Baptist Meeting House from 1805 to 1837 when they moved to another location and the building became a community meeting house. So uh, that's just one of those kind of interesting stories where you see the Baptist doctrine and Baptist teaching starting to influence uh, even congregations, not just individuals. Another name that you may be familiar with uh, through this same time period of the early um, uh, mid to late 1800s, the 1800s for sure, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon is often known. Uh, he is, again, one of those Baptist voices from London. He preaches at the, uh, the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London as a Baptist, and uh, for 38 years there is one of the dominant voices of uh, the Baptist movement, both in England and in America, as he came here to preach also. So the 1800s was an interesting time for sure. It's during this time that North Carolina establishes its own association of Baptists. The North Carolina Baptist Association organized in 1830 down in Greenville, North Carolina. Some Baptist pastors there uh, gathered to do what they had seen done in other communities and, and uh, states and started to organize themselves. Here were their five guiding principles. Uh, their purpose was the education of young preachers. Uh, if you go back, uh, really, almost 200 years, that was a driving purpose of the Baptists back then. And you know what? Today, 200 years later, it's still a driving purpose to educate young preachers in the biblical truth, to assist in building Baptist houses of worship, or churches, as we would say. We use that term today, church planting, is really what they said, we're committed to do this, to continue that work, to spread the gospel at home and abroad by sending and supporting those called of God. That's, a, that's certainly a mission statement uh, to support missionaries, and that's still a very driving part of, uh, of the Baptist movement in uh, the North Carolina Baptist Association, to encourage Sunday schools and Bible reading. Having mentioned Sunday schools, that's a whole other story into itself. It is a story of Robert Rakes. You know, every, every church is familiar with Sunday school, it seems like. But Robert, you know, there was a time in, in church history in England when there was no Sunday school. 
Robert Rakes was not even a pastor or a minister. He was just a, he, he owned a newspaper in London. And in the um, late 1700s, on his way to church, he'd walk by children playing in the streets, most of them dirty and, and kind of foul-mouthed and really sort of convicted his heart about what are we doing for these children? And uh, long story very short, uh, he was the driving force that began something that was sounded so unusual to his generation, and that was bring the street kids in and teach them the Bible, teach them things that they should know about life and things. And uh, that became the founding of Sunday School. It quickly spread to be very popular, obviously, and even came to America uh, in the early 1800s where the American Sunday School Union was started to help support that movement across denominational lines. And so Sunday School by now in the 1800s was a standard part. We wouldn't think much of it. We think that's a normal part of church. But in the 1830s, that was still kind of a new thing to a lot of denominations. And then lastly, to care for the orphans. You know, in the 1800s, there wasn't a whole lot of medical opportunities. To, if you got sick, there's maybe a more than 50% chance you might not survive it. Or if you got tetanus or you got some other uh, disease. So uh, there was always a need to care for the orphans. And that was the five driving principles that started the North Carolina Baptist Association. So to help answer that, here are some of the things that we now can look back on nearly 200 years later and say, here's what they did with those five driving principles. They started lots of colleges eventually. You will know many of these names. These names and others, uh, Wake Forest College initially started in Wake County, North Carolina, but Wake Forest University, as we know it now, which has been moved to Winston-Salem in the 1950s, uh, is also part of that list and some others too. But these colleges are, all have Baptist heritage uh, in their in their uh, time, and many, of, and many of them still have uh, a theology school, a school of theology, or a seminary attached to them. Um, and uh, so it's, a, uh, it's still a movement uh, for education. Um, I'll mention another one here in just a moment. The Baptist Children's Homes, uh, which is just down the road from us in Thomasville, is, uh, is their location, and they serve orphans there. And uh, they're always, as any, any organization that helps orphans and looking for assistance and looking for uh, support for that. Uh, they have the Baptist Retirement Homes. I think Winston-Salem and Asheville are the two locations there. We're in a Baptist structure of teaching and caring. They do that. Of course, we're all familiar with the North Carolina Baptist Hospital over in Winston-Salem. Uh, those are all outgrowths of that idea of what the North Carolina Baptist Association um, uh, looks to be a part of, and it's continued through that 200 years and other things too, but obviously too many to list. Uh, during this time, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the, when the, uh, the establishment of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 organized in Atlanta, and uh, there at this church uh, was their first meeting and the establishment that would grow today uh, across the country, the Southern Baptist, uh, certainly very influential as a convention uh, for a lot of reasons and uh, a lot of different avenues for that. I mentioned earlier the American Baptist uh, Convention of the United States of America, the ABC USA group. From that group, there broke off some other groups. Um, the uh, Garb Churches, we are often called. You may not be familiar with the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Um, this, these, these are conservative Baptist churches more in the northern part of the country. Again, they broke away from ABC USA or what was then their organization, um, because they, they were more conservative. 
uh, we as an independent Baptist church have used, one of the, one of the great things that uh, the Garb churches did many years ago was they started printing houses and publishers. And uh, we for many years, uh, I mean many years, have used material from the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. The, again, they're obviously uh, uh, often called the Garb churches. And uh, they have a great uh, publishing arm that they um, publish things that we'd be very comfortable with, for sure. But again, you don't find them down here. They're all up north. Uh, the Conservative Baptist Association of America, now called the Venture Church Network, which is, again, not one of the major groups, but still having an influence and moving in uh, many areas. Uh, Baptist, independent Baptist churches have had, have had their names, too. Uh, the World Baptist Fellowship began in 1933. Uh, I had to mention in the timeline the founding of our church in 1939. And if you don't know some of the history, go out in the hall, history hallway here and you can read a little bit of that. Um, uh, started there on Pisgah Church Road, of course. And uh, so in that time frame, the Baptist Bible Fellowship is a conservative group of Baptists. Um, south and Midwest, you have to, I don't know if Timmy, there are some Bible Baptist Fellowship churches in this part of North Carolina, but you'll find them uh, scattered here and there for sure. Southwide Baptist Fellowship in 1956, still a fairly influential independent Baptist uh, movement. Um, um, I went to their, to their Southwide Conference in Raleigh at Beacon Baptist Church um, a little over a year ago. This year they have their big meeting in, uh, just outside of Nashville in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. And that's a good group to go fellowship with. I enjoy the opportunities to be there. Uh, the Independent Baptist Fellowship International. Again, now they're taking it to the world internationally. So you're starting to see those kind of groups and others too. Again, time pro prohibits listing all of them. And we don't need to. Just to get a sense of the flavor of how Baptists have moved. And then the International Baptist Network similarly taking the Baptist missions call around the world. So, you know, you want to find a group to be associated with. There's plenty of opportunities there and, and uh, to identify with. A couple of names that are tied particularly to the Southern Baptist are worth mentioning in this part of our history of the Baptist. One is Lottie Moon. Have, have many of you heard of Lottie Moon? Probably. Probably heard the name, but you may not know the story. Uh, Lottie Moon, pictured there, of course, in the top left, and in the picture at the bottom, she's, the, she's standing on the left also. Um, Lottie Moon was, was born into a pretty affluent family in Virginia. Uh, she was well-educated. Uh, for her time, especially there, and you can see in the 1800s, and very much a committed Baptist family. So much so that her sister, her older sister, committed to missions, and her older sister went to China. In the 18, late 1800s, she goes to, uh, mid-1800s, she goes to China, uh, and uh, she serves there in a school to teach children. And... Um, that made such an impact on her younger sister, Lottie, that a few years later, Lottie would go join her sister at this very same school. And these two sisters were teaching together, teaching children and having an influence there as Baptist missionaries of sorts. And, but what, what really ignited Lottie Moon's work there was her ability to go into the villages in the weekends and minister to the families there, especially to the women she was able to bring things she knew how to do that they didn't, and she shared a relationship with them. Within a couple of years of starting to do that on weekends, she left the school and did this full-time. She became so impassioned about it 
that in 1887, she wrote uh, to a, an American publisher who was publishing a journal of her, of her story, and she proposed that the week before Christmas, this is in 1887, the week before Christmas be established as a time in which the churches could take up a special offering to support international missions. That tradition that she began or she recommended and was started in a few churches, today is spread across the, the Southern Baptist denominations, and they annually do the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for the very same purpose of which she wrote about in 1887, to help support foreign missions. By the way, that offering now takes in multiple millions of dollars every December to help support the foreign mission work of the Southern Baptists through their uh, International Missions Board, IMB. Um, so there's a lot to be said about that. Again, born in Virginia, her, followed her sister to China, and her ministry in the villages is really what ignited her heart and, and brought her to that service. Another similar name, and, a, and the same generation, um, actually 10 years younger than Lottie Moon, is the name Annie Armstrong. Again, a name known well to the Southern Baptists, but not so much uh, among others sometimes, but you may have heard the name. Annie Armstrong was... A also passionate voice for missions, for foreign missions. Uh, her basic idea was, well, why are we emphasizing missions one week a year? We should emphasize it all throughout the year. And so she was the one who organized what's known as the Women's Missionary Union uh, in Southern Baptist churches for the support and continuation of missions on the foreign field. So her, uh, the offering that's done for her in her honor is called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering again, for North American missions in this particular one. And this continues today to be one of the, again, the larger outreaches of funding for missions. So you've got the Lottie Moon offering that goes to international missions through the IMB of the Southern Baptist, the International Missions Board, and you've got the Annie Armstrong offering going to North American missions, or the NAMB, the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist. And so uh, that's another name. Again, a great history and uh, great stories could be told of both of these. What is, what's constant through this is that, that the Baptist movement has a strong heritage from its very founding, and some of the earliest names in all of mission work are Baptist. And today there are multiple Baptists. I mean, this hardly scratches the surface of Baptist uh, uh, agencies that support and work with international and uh, national mission age, uh, organizations and missionaries. We support many missionaries uh, through ABWE, the Association of Baptist World Evangelism. I've met some of those folks, and I've traveled and, and been on the foreign field myself. Uh, BI, uh, Baptist Mid Missions, we have uh, missionaries there. BIMI, the Baptist International Missions Incorporated. Um, Vision Baptist Missions, we've, we've added a couple of recent ones to that list. So it's constant. And if you want a good flavor of our missions program, make sure you go to the missions map on the wall out here, right? Uh, that's one reason why it's up there, and you'll see some of our heart for missions as a congregation where we support over 70 missionaries and mission organizations around the world and uh, in many places around here also. So very much that heart of missions is, a, is part of what makes a, uh, the Baptist heritage. Another thing is also uh, the continuation of education with Baptist influence, higher ed particularly. Um, Furman University, Baylor University in Texas is a Baptist heritage school. Uh, Pensacola Christian College down in Florida, West Coast Bible Co Baptist College rather in California, uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary over in Wake Forest, north of Raleigh, 
uh, is a very influential voice um, in the uh, Baptist realm and beyond even. Uh, Crown College in Tennessee, um, uh, North Greenville University, right outside of Greenville, South Carolina. Bob Jones University has a strong Baptist connection. Uh, the college at Southeastern is the college part, the undergrad part of Southeastern Seminary. And then Liberty University, of course, right up the road on 29 in Lynchburg uh, has been a very influential um, uh, university. So Baptists continue with a strong sense of higher ed. And uh, also what's trickled down from that is the large number of Baptist schools, Christian schools that's, that are scattered throughout the country and really the world. And uh, there's a large number of them, and our community has some great ones, and uh, very thankful for the influence they've had in our community. So Baptists still continue to have a strong influence in education for that. So what can we say? Last slide as we finish up quickly. What can we say about the Baptists in America? The Baptists have influenced believers, the doctrine of believers' by baptism instead of infant baptism, the importance of church planting, in many areas, which still continues today, the North Carolina Baptist Association today uh, still continues training and teaching. Uh, you know, we may think there's churches everywhere. There's a lot of communities that still do not have access um, to, uh, to Baptist churches, and so that's a, still a driving part of that. Uh, missions, home and international, we've seen revivals and camp meetings that are always a part of a Baptist congregation's history, uh, orga uh, organizing conventions and associations, Again, in our area, the Piedmont Baptist Association and the North Carolina uh, Baptist um, Association are a big part of what happens. And then the influence, again, of higher education. So there's lots of things we look back the last, you know, couple hundred years and say, well, the Baptists sure have made a point uh, to do lots of things. And uh, along with that, one of the things that, uh, that again, we, our class supports, uh, and thank you for that continued support, uh, is a good Baptist missionary serving over in South Asia. And I've had a chance to, to visit with him and, and be there in, in his country of service and to see the tribes and the, the villages he's ministering to and the work that he and his family have labored to. Had a great email from him this week to describe the continuing work that they're doing, and I'm just very thankful for the affiliation we have uh, with the Appel family and their service for the Lord. Uh, good Baptist from the state of New York. Who would have thought, right? So... Uh, uh, we're thankful for that connection. So I remind you as an opportunity to pray for them and an opportunity to, uh, uh, to give as the box is out there this evening. Wow, that's a lot to cover, really, right? Well, so next time, where we go? Where we go with this? We'll go to the 1900s. We'll, try to, we'll take this timeline from the late 1800s in through the 1900s and look at a few other areas of Baptist involvement and Baptist uh, movements and some things that are still happening today before we finish up the following Sunday. Well, let's pray, and we'll dismiss. Thank you for your patience. We got started a little late, went a little late, I'm afraid. Father, thank you for our time today. Again, we're reminded of great generations that have gone before us, individuals who committed themselves and their lives and their families to your service, and their impact is still being felt today. And I pray that you will allow us uh, to have a glimpse of that in our own lives, in our own congregation, in our church, in the time in which we live, in the time in which we serve. May it be for the same purpose and the cause of which these individuals gave their lives as we seek to not just to carry a denominational name, but as we seek first and foremost to carry the name of Christ our Savior. And I pray that you will bless our efforts as a congregation as we rally toward these, toward these important issues and items in our day and time that we'll be courageous to stand and convicted uh, to stand upon your word and what it teaches us as we serve you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great evening.